Morning, everyone. I'm under strict instructions this morning not to do or say anything embarrassing about my daughter's birthday. Um, I, however, I can't make any promises. Being a father, I can just be embarrassing from time to time without even planning to be. Um, as demonstrated right now. Uh, shall we move on? <laughs> Whilst the blue buckets are being passed around, uh, if you have a Bible with you, uh, you could be turning to uh, the book of Acts in the New Testament and chapter 16. If you don't have a Bible with you, uh, don't worry, you'll be able to follow the scripture references uh, on the screen uh, above me. Uh, in this uh, kind of first term of the year, we've been spending time as a church considering our vision. We've been looking at lots of different uh, churches in the New Testament um, to consider overall what does it mean to be God's church uh, today. We've, we've kind of, in effect, we've done a guided tour uh, through lots of different churches, sometimes in the book of Acts, sometimes in one of the letters, uh, and then each time kind of considering uh, what we learned from that in being a church today. And we're going we're gonna to visit another church actually this morning. We're going to uh, visit uh, the church in Philippi. We're going to look at how that church got started. We, uh, a couple of weeks ago, we were looking at the Macedonian churches and something about uh, their generosity and how they'd understood God's grace. And this is one of the churches in that region. One of the churches in Macedonia was Philippi. This is the first place that Paul uh, and Silas and some others uh, visited in uh, Macedonia uh, with the gospel. And we're going to read a bit about how that, how that took place, what happened, the people that they met, how that church got started, and therefore what we learn, uh, what we learn from it. So if you're in Acts chapter 16... Uh, I'm going to read from verse 6 all the way, I think, to the end of the chapter. So here goes. Uh, Paul and his companions travelled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. From Troas, uh, we put out to sea and sailed straight to Samothrace, And the next day on to Neapolis. From there we travelled to Philippi, a Roman colony and the leading city of that district of Macedonia. And we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who'd gathered there. One of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira who was a worshipper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. This girl followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so troubled that he turned around and said to the Spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the Spirit left her. When the owners of the slave girl realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Saul and uh, Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten. After they'd been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. 
Upon receiving such orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their uh, their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everybody's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, Don't harm yourself! We're all here! The jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in the house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately, he and all his family were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he'd come to believe in God, he and his whole family. When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the order, Release those men. The jailer told Paul, The magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave. Go in peace. But Paul said to the officers, They beat us publicly without a trial, even though we're Roman citizens and threw us into prison. And now, do they want to get rid of us quietly? No. Let them come themselves and escort us out. The officers reported this to the magistrates. And when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens. They were alarmed. They came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house, where they met with the brothers and encouraged them. Then they left. Let's pray. Father God, as we come to your word now, your living and active word, Lord, we are reliant on you to help us. Would you come, Lord, and and open our eyes, open our ears, Lord, to listen and to see God at work. Lord, I pray for fresh light, fresh illumination to come to our eyes, to come to our minds, to to come to us, Lord, that we might see what it is to follow you, that you would open our eyes to what you're doing, Lord. Just as you did that to Paul and Silas, help us to see what God is doing. Perhaps what God is doing in our lives, in this church, in our workplace, in our relationships. Lord, how the gospel, your good news, Lord God, is given to kind of impact everything. Everything that we believe, everything therefore that we do, everything that we pray about, everything that we, we hope for and look forward to. Lord, we want to ask that your kingdom would come. Lord God, we thank you for what we see here in, uh, in this account of what happened in Philippi. I pray, Lord God, we'd see your kingdom at work in this city as well and in our lives. In Jesus' name. Amen. So the, the journey to Philippi was far from straightforward by this Point. Many different churches have been planted. Paul and Silas have visited a whole number of them through what's now uh, modern-day uh, Turkey. And no doubt they had a plan. They, they probably had a good plan. Uh, how they expected to proceed and go from place to place, uh, telling people the good news of Jesus. Often their pattern would be to go to the synagogue first, to find a Jewish population, meet in the synagogue, talk to them about God's purpose through Jesus, see some of them come to faith in Jesus, Uh, see the beginning of God's church and then bring the message of good news to Gentiles as well and and on they would go. But you get the impression in these early verses that I just read out that this had been an intensely frustrating time. It's only stated in a couple of verses so it can can sound like, well, we tried to go this way, we tried to go that way, then we went the other way, then God had uh, revealed to us where we should go. It can sound like that just happened over the course of a couple of days. That happened over the course of probably several weeks, and hundreds of miles of travel. We tried to go here. We tried to go there. We thought maybe the Lord would enable us to preach the gospel in Asia. We couldn't go that way. We couldn't go this way. 
just a frustrating uh, time before then having this, this vision uh, in the night of a man of Macedonia saying, come and, come and help us, begging, in fact, for help. And the request for help meant, ah, well, we figure that means to go there and preach the gospel. What's going to help? What's the most helpful thing that we can do? What's the most important thing that we can help people with? It's by bringing the gospel. It's by bringing the good news in the Lord Jesus. And so imagine then, after their frustration, their sense of, maybe just of relief, right? Thank goodness, now we know we're in the will of God. Um, Maybe a sense of confidence. We know where God wants us to be. And after traveling here, there, and everywhere... Now, quite quickly, they can make their, their progress from Troas out to sea to that place I can barely pronounce and then on to Neapolis. It, it happened quite quickly. The, 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 probably the wind was blowing in the right direction for them to jump on a boat and head in that direction. Oh, God's with us. This is wonderful. We had made our plans before. Actually, they may have been good plans, but they weren't God's plans So we had to shelve those. We had to scrap those for the time being. We're going with what God's revealed. We're heading in this different direction. Brilliant. We know God's with us. And obviously I've read through the passage, and you may be familiar with it already, but just stop and think right now. What would you be thinking? What would you be feeling? If you know, I know. God's spoken. We're in the will of God. We know what he's called us to right now. We're on our way. There's a good wind behind us. We're making progress. What would you expect to be the fruit of that? What would you expect to be the evidence? God's really with us. This new momentum's come now. This new sense of direction. We're working in God's kingdom. I wonder what's going to happen when we get to Macedonia. I'm guessing they were under no illusions as to what could be taking place. Uh, that it wasn't, all, it wasn't all easy. Well, as we go through, just bear that in mind. They are in the will and the purposes of, uh, of God as they head to this, uh, this different city, this new place. And as we, as we arrive there with them, we're going to see they have encounters with, um, well, with lots of people, but in particular three. We're going to look at three people. It is wonderful, isn't it, to hear people's stories. It's wonderful to share. How, how did God meet with you? We heard one this morning when, when Rachel came forward and just shared about going on an Alpha course, being invited to see you, and singing that song we just sang a moment ago. Now, it's like a spiritual kind of fingerprint, isn't it? This unique mark. This is, this is what God did. This is how God met with me. This is what God said. This is how God provided. This is how God led me. This is how I came to faith. And it's so encouraging uh, to hear, and like a fingerprint, utterly Unique, maybe common threads for different ones of us. You might identify um, with one of the people in uh, this chapter who met with God. But let's, let's consider that, not just in terms of how we personally met with God. Maybe that's a subject of conversation over coffee later. Uh, but for others who are going to meet him. Uh, perhaps just as uh, God used Paul and Silas, Luke and Timothy, well... Maybe God's going to use us in a similar way uh, in this city. They were only there for a couple of days or a few weeks, perhaps. Uh, And for most of us, we are in this city for a lot longer. Uh, And so as we go through and we we look at each of these people, we could kind of consider, who are they? Where does the action take place? Or if you like, where is it that God met with them? How? How did God meet with them? And also, well, what, what do we learn from that today? Let's, uh, let's look at the first person, uh, Lydia. We meet her first. Um, it says in verse 13, On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who'd gathered there. One of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira who was a worshipper of God. Who is she? She's successful. She's a businesswoman. Uh, She is probably reasonably well off, wealthy. She's from Thyatira, but she's either completely moved, maybe she's even got two homes, maybe she still has a base in Thyatira and then also a base uh, in, in Philippi. 
Maybe she's made the move completely. Uh, there's no mention of a husband, so she's a, a single woman. Maybe that means that she's been widowed. Maybe that means that she was divorced. Uh, but she is really acting as the head of the household. She's the one supporting a household of people. People are dependent on her. Maybe that's some relatives and uh, family members. Maybe that's also servants, people that effectively she employs. Because she's from Styrotyra, we, we know she's, she's a Gentile. We know she's, uh, she wasn't like born into the community of the worshippers of God. At some point, she has decided to find out more about Israel's God. Maybe that happened back in Thyatira. Maybe that happened in her hometown years and years ago. She realized, I, just, I, I want to know him more. She's grown up in a pagan culture, in a pagan environment, where people are worshipping all sorts of different gods at different times for different reasons. And she, fi- she finds out about this community who just worship one god. How unusual. Um, and at some point, she wants to find out more. And so, here she is. Now, uh, living in Philippine, doing trade, doing business, doing quite well. And on the Sabbath then, she's making a decision to go outside the city wall, maybe go even beyond the river, and meet with a very small group of worshippers to Israel's God. She's, she's living in a city that was like a, a mini version of Rome. And the, the Roman Empire were in effect saying to the world around them, we can save you, we can make you secure. Um, so uh, that's where people were putting their hope, kind of within the city, within the Roman system, within their kind of cults of worshipping Caesar and so on. And she kind of senses that's, that's the mainstream, but I just don't think that's the best place to place all my security. That's not where I'm putting all of my hopes. I'm not putting my hope in in Rome. I'm not putting my hope in Caesar. I'm I'm putting my hope with this small group of people who aren't allowed to meet in the city. They've got to go outside. They're kind of, they're they're around, but they're outsiders. She realizes there's more hope with that small group of outsiders than there is in this big, successful, cosmopolitan, Roman city. So that's where, that's where she is. She is specifically then going out to this place of prayer. It means that the, the Jewish community was not big enough to have a synagogue. That means there's less than 10 men or less than even 10 people perhaps. There's a really small group of people and she's going out to the place of prayer. I mean, who knew that you could meet God in a prayer meeting? Um, and in, in a small one as well. But apparently it's true. You can meet God there. Um, but it's also it's like on the margins of society. It's out on the edge. That's where God meets with her. How does God meet with her? Well, in some ways, quietly, steadily, over some period of time, drawing her gently to himself. Over time, kind of softening her, her heart, drawing her out from whatever her background was, her pagan history, drawing her first to Israel's God, and then when she listens to Paul speak about Jesus, she's drawn to Israel's uh, Messiah. How does God meet with her? Well, it's not particularly dramatic in one sense. She's in the meeting. And she's listening. And Paul is speaking. And then it says the Lord opened her heart. So Paul's doing what God has called Paul to do. Share the message of Jesus. Speak. She's doing something that only she can do for herself, which is she's listening. But God is doing what only he can do, which is opening her heart. Opening her heart to the gospel. That's That's what we believe. That's... That's actually, in a, I suppose, all of our story in a way. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus, there came a point, one way or another, when the Lord opened your heart. And so now, if we are, if we are speaking or listening, we're also praying, oh God, open, open people's hearts. Uh, maybe sometimes for us, in terms of just wanting to learn more and grow more in our faith, it's Lord, open my heart again. Open, 
opened me up. She's become this soft-hearted lady listening uh, listening to Paul. Sometimes when we hear stories, we can just think, oh, the dramatic ones are the best. I just want to hear that dramatic moment where God met with someone in a kind of in a miraculous, awesome moment, fireworks, all sorts of crazy things going on. All of which are kind of metaphors, by the way. Uh, for this incredible moment of being uh, kind of arrested by God. A bit more like Paul's story. But actually, this is a miraculous story of God at work and a wonderful story of God opening, opening her heart. Not necessarily... To talk about the heart doesn't necessarily mean that it was this hugely emotional moment. Uh, we think of the heart being just the, the center of emotions. This is being said of, it's just the center of her whole life, her whole being, her whole personality. And at the end of Luke's gospel, it will say, uh, when Jesus died, he rose again and he spent time with the disciples. It says, he opened their mind to the scriptures. It's in effect saying something the same, or very similar. God helped those disciples and then this lady to really see to really understand, to really get it, who God is, who Jesus is, what he's done, and the response it draws from us. And so she's eager to make a response. And so what do we learn from that? Well, God God does work gradually. God wonderfully works in sometimes quite unremarkable ways. In other ways, it's incredibly remarkable. Put yourself back in Paul and Silas' shoes for a moment, for, for weeks and for hundreds of miles, they've been trying to work out where to go, where to preach the gospel. And they've been frustrated at every turn. We tried to go to Asia. That's not talking about the whole continent we now think of. It's a part of Turkey. We tried to go there. We thought we might go to Bithynia. That's up a bit. And that was, you kind of wonder how. It's just a couple of verses and quickly it's gone. How was it that the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus, God himself, God made it clear? That's not the way, for, that's not the, it's not that direction at the moment that I'm leading you in. I'm leading you this way, go to Macedonia. And so you think back to that dream, of the, the man of Macedonia, come and help us, he said. Well, it turns out, when they've arrived, having wanted to go to Asia all those weeks ago, the first person to be saved in modern-day Europe is an Asian woman. Well, I wanted to go there, but God's taken me another route to a different place, but I've met someone who's from Thyatira. God's at work. Can you see God at work? Let's give thanks that we have a God whose heart is so much for people, for his kingdom, for his gospel, he's prepared to frustrate our plans from time to time. Can you, when your plans get frustrated, can you see that God might be at work? When you can't go somewhere, or if you, you, you've got this dream about something, you think, oh, it's not working out how I planned, it's not, how, it's not working out how I wanted. At that moment, can you see, I think God might be at work. This isn't what I wanted, this isn't how I reckon things might happen. This is not what I had in my mind's eye. I didn't think I was going to be in Sheffield. It's the last place on earth I wanted to be. But I can see that God's been at work all this time. It's a good thing. When God demonstrates his sovereignty, he says, no, don't go that way. I've got something different. I've got something better. It's no bad thing for us to come up with plans and ideas. But actually to be prepared and flexible enough to say, I guess you're just not opening that up at the moment, Lord. I'm, I'm going to go, I'll, I'll go where you lead. Even then, he's kind of responding to this, uh, to this dream. Maybe they're thinking, where is this Macedonian man? We've kind of come, we've gone to the place of prayer, and, and it's a, uh, a small group of women. That's, that's fantastic. We had this dream about a guy. Anyway, I know, <laughs> metaphorical again, perhaps just representing the whole of that area. But So on they go. Who else do we meet? That's, that's Lydia. The businesswoman. And then we meet a slave girl. We don't find out her name, uh, but we, we meet her, or they met her on another day of the week when they're going to the place of prayer again. So they've seen Lydia respond. They've got a sense that there's someone else there in that meeting 
someone else just outside the city on the Sabbath day, and we think they're close. We think they might come through. We think they might respond to the gospel and get baptized. Um, Let's go back. So they're going back. Makes sense. They have a plan. But notice again how God interrupts the plan in a way that must have been, again, a bit frustrating. How does God interrupt their plan? Well, they were met by a slave girl. Now think about Lydia again for a moment. Lydia, businesswoman, she's in control of her life. Practically, financially. Maybe things weren't always simple, but she's, she's been able to move hundreds of miles and set up a new home for herself. Loads of, she's got the power to shape her own life. She's, she can make decisions. Now we're meeting somebody who has no power, no ability, no control over their own decisions. She's a slave. She's owned by other people. So she's controlled by her masters. And then we find out, not only is that the case, but she's also, if you like, um, enslaved by an evil spirit. It says uh, that uh, they were met by the slave girl who had a spirit by which she predicted the future, uh, by which she earned a great deal of money for her uh, her owners. Uh, A spirit by which she predicted the future, a spirit of divination, it's literally saying uh, a python spirit, a python-like spirit. Uh, image of a snake, of a python, was, a, was associated with some Greek mythology in a particular temple. Um, uh, and it's got a background story. There's this slippery evil spirit who is kind of coiled around and, and is controlling her, her life. Now um, maybe... Some people, if she had any friends, maybe some people were kind of envious of her ability and the attention that she gets. She earns a lot of money for her masters. She's got this special gift. It's especially dark, but she has this special gift. She gets this special attention. But she is trapped, she is stuck. Uh, She has this encounter with, uh, with Paul and Silas. Maybe she's just heard them speaking. Or maybe it's the Spirit somehow recognizing what they're up to, recognizing they're servants of the Most High. And so she doesn't even know what she's saying. It's, a, it's the Spirit within her that's uttering uh, these words. Uh, these men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. Why is, it, why is an evil spirit saying that? But it is kind of profoundly unsettling. I mean, imagine you're kind of walking along in Sheffield, someone spots you and points and says, "Uh, this person is a Christian and they think that you're going to go to hell unless you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, it's true. Uh, It's not really the way that I'd want to put it. That's probably not my starting point. And it's now being broadcast to absolutely everyone I'm passing by. This is no help. This is a hindrance. And this isn't bringing about faith. It's not bringing about a faith in the slave girl. It's not bringing about faith in people listening. It's not really encouraging Paul and Silas. Their their cover is being blown. This wasn't our plan. This isn't the way we wanted to do things. Um, And even though words that are true can come from her own lips... She's not, she's not near to accepting them. Remember, she's, she's trapped. She may have no idea of the significance of what she's saying. Other people might hear her and just think, okay, so those guys are a bit like that slave girl. They're kind of all on the same page. There's, there's different ways to be saved. There are different gods. There's different ways of doing life. I guess they're just another option. And somehow they're associated now with this slave girl. What's going on? So... Bizarrely, uh, we might think, she kept this up uh, for many days. Maybe she's kind of like oddly attracted to them, but at the same time, she's far away. uh, And she's not not free. So let's just think that's who she is. She's there, but she's still kind of in the dark, really. And where is this happening? Well, it's not in the meeting. It's on the street. It's happening on the way to the meeting even. And it's not that she is seeking God, but she's kind of stumbled upon 
Paul and Silas, and this slippery spirit influencing her knows exactly what they're, uh, they're, they're out to. What, what a bizarre scenario. So, so how then does God meet with her? What sort of encounter does she have with God? Well, it happens like this. It gets to a certain point, and Paul, so, so troubled by what's happening, commands the spirit uh, to leave her, and it does. That's good news. That is the authority of Jesus over every principality and power, over every uh, spiritual uh, being unseen by our eyes uh, in the spiritual realm. Uh, It submits in the name of Jesus. Good news for her. She's free. She's free from its suffocating control. And actually, therefore, presumably, she's now free from her owners. They've got no use of her because she can't make money for them anymore. So she's been set free, free from slavery. You might be thinking, but was, was that great? I mean, now she's free. How is she going to get by? What, she was making lots of money. Presumably, she benefited from that a little bit. So how, how is she going to do life now? Where's her security now? Who's going to look after her? And Luke doesn't tell us. And sometimes Luke kind of stays with the action. And so we don't find out how every story finishes. We could at least imagine that this brand new Church of Jesus community noticed her vulnerability and offered to take her in. And give her a fresh start. She could have responded to the gospel at some other point. She could have heard the gospel and then not responded. We don't know exactly. But it's good news that when, when someone meets with God. It's good news when God's work takes place in someone's, someone's life. And what do we learn about this? Well, God is not just focused on meetings God isn't only in the prayer meeting. And God isn't only interested in the well-to-do who can basically influence and control and decide what they do with their life. That Sometimes that's the luxury of the wealthy, isn't it? Having the ability to make lots of decisions. Having a freedom to choose where to go. And the good news is not just focused on those who are free to make decisions in life. It's not just about God's only good news for people who can get along to the meeting. It's God is good news, and the gospel is good news for everyone. Kind of tempted to say for a moment, think about the naughtiest girl that you know. Maybe she wasn't the naughtiest. Think about the most troubled girl that you know. Maybe she's really, really popular. Maybe she's got some amazing abilities. Maybe she gets lots of attention. Maybe she's just a bit weird and no one really goes near her. Who, who is the most troubled person that you know? Uh, let me put it another way. Who's the most irritating? Who, who do you know? Who irritates you the most, just interrupting my life, interrupting my plans. Don't dwell on that too much. There are people looking at each other. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I was just assuming for a moment they weren't in the room, but uh, awkward. <laughs> Who, who's the most troubled? Who's the most popular? Who's the most irritating? Who would you rather just wasn't there? Go away. I'm about God's work. You're just interrupting me. And can you see God's, control, God's care and God's concern for her? Can you see and can you believe for God's work in her life? You might be thinking, I can't wait to be rid of her. I can't wait till she's no longer around. I'm going to be changing school after the summer. Hopefully we'll go in different directions. Or maybe it's about 
what confronts you in the workplace. Well, I can believe you, God, and to see your kingdom and see your work happening in the meeting, the place of prayer with like-minded people. People, yes, maybe over time they're not yet a believer, but they're so soft, they're so ready to respond. I can believe for your kingdom there. I can believe for your amazing love for that wealthy woman. Still wondering where this man is, but I can believe you, God, for this wealthy woman who's quite well to do, you can have an easy, nice conversation with. I can believe you, God, for her. I'm not sure I can believe you, God, for the person who irritates me the most. Now, hopefully I'm not stressing the point too much. We don't know how her story concluded, but maybe that's true of people that we know right now. Maybe they've had some encounter with God, and we don't know how the story concludes. What does the church say? You're free. Go on. Off you go. Or you're free. Do you want to come around for food? Oh, but she's so awkward. Yeah, well, never mind. Maybe we weren't all in exactly the same situation as she was, but this is God's church beginning. Can you see that? This is church in Philippi starting. Paul has tremendous kind of affection for this church. When he writes the letter to them later, you get that sense. And you can see he's, look, they're in the will of God. And what's happening? In the will of God, he's been followed for days by someone winding him up. But he's in the will of God. He's seeing the kingdom come. And he's believing for good news. Do we have faith in God to see others' lives changed? For the good in this way. So we've got a businesswoman. And maybe this slave girl, as this church begins to take shape, who else do we meet in Acts chapter 16, giving us an idea of what this church, the first church in Europe, giving us an idea of what this church looked like, what this church was made up of. Well, we've got a businesswoman, we've got a slave girl, potentially, and we've got a hard man. Because we meet this Philippian jailer. Now, I've skipped over the part a little bit where there's this trial. Paul and Silas are dragged in. Just remember, they are, they're unjustly accused. It wasn't about unlawful customs. The slave owners were short of money now that the kingdom of God had come in their town. And they were irritated by that. So they dragged them off to the magistrates. The magistrates don't even have a proper trial or anything. They call no witnesses. There's nothing fair about it. Okay, we will beat them. They beat them. They are severely flogged and then they're taken to the local hard man. They're, they're taken to the, the jailer, the Philippian jailer, the prison guard. Who was he? Well, maybe he was an ex-soldier. Uh, a lot of people may have fought in the, in the Roman army and then their pension was, go and live in Philippi. You can have some land there. You can have a steady job. Uh, that's where you can settle down. Maybe that's his story. Uh, maybe he's from that part of the world in the first place anyway. But here he is. Uh, doesn't have the nicest job, perhaps. But he is quite good at following orders. He's got some principles of sort. Respect for authority, perhaps. Maybe his own versions of, of fairness doesn't say much. Doesn't ask any questions in a way, well, he does later on, what must I do to be saved? But when these beaten up Jews are brought in, he doesn't ask any questions. Right, guard them carefully. Okay, he takes them. He locks them up in the inner cell, puts, his, puts their feet in the stocks. They've been severely flogged. They are battered, bleeding, and bruised. And their feet are put in the stocks. Remember, remember the vision. Remember the man of Macedonia, come and help us. They're in the will of God, but they're in the stocks. And they're not designed for comfort. They weren't just designed for extra safety. Let's make sure they don't get escape. They are designed to be painful in all likelihood, and they are already in pain. Let's just bear that in mind as they meet this local handler. What's going on, God? Earlier on, they're praying, we're so frustrated, Lord. Why don't you lead us somewhere? Open some door. Show us where to go. Macedonia. Okay, Lord, we're on the way. And then they've got this uncomfortable night in jail. 
What's going on, Lord? What would you do at that point? We're in the will of God. Come and help us, he said. This is painful. But notice, they're not complaining. They're not complaining, though they have every right, as you'd see later on, when it comes to them being released. It's interesting, he doesn't say at the outset, oh, by the way, I'm a Roman citizen. Oh, so sorry, we won't lock you up then. He says that later. He, does it, he says it not to protect himself. He does it to protect the church on his way out and their reputation. So he, they're dragged to prison in the hand of God. What's going on? What's, why, what, what would your prayers be like at that point? If only we could get out of here, we could do some good. If only we could get out of here, we might meet the Macedonian man. If only we could get out of here, we could see the church blossom and flourish. What are you doing, Lord? You ever pray like that? Get me out of here. It may not exactly be as uncomfortable as that prison, but if only I could be somewhere else. I'm done with this place. I don't want to speak to him. It's so unkind, so ungracious, so unhospitable. Inhospitable? I'm not sure which one that is. Can you f- We'd feel a bit angsty at that point. God, what are you up to? But can you see that God is up to something? You can imagine the Almighty with the angels thinking, how can we get Paul and Silas to meet him? Because he needs some help. Doesn't look like it. He's hard. He's tough. But he doesn't hear them complain. He hears them sing and he hears them pray. And now we can think and imagine, okay, they are, they're doing that up until midnight. At what point were they put in the stocks in the inner cell? How long have they been singing? How long have they been praying? And what has that jailer heard? Because they've been praying to God. God, wonderful saviour, light of the whole world, the one and only sovereign. You're in control of all things. You're the great deliverer. You can deliver us in a moment, Lord. We trust you. We believe you. This is mighty painful, but we know you're working out your plan and purpose. Oh God, reveal it. Even reveal it right now, Lord. Nothing's impossible for you. And they're praying and they're singing, and he's listening. Hard man, a few words, with no mercy, is hearing them pray and sing. Sometimes I can feel a bit nervous. I don't know about you. I can feel a bit nervous even about other people hearing me pray. So, there's no inhibition here. In, there's, presumably there's other people who needed the same treatment in that prison, and they're all listening too, and we're not told what they might have been saying saying to them but that's their response at the midnight hour and then an earthquake happens so we've had the unremarkable moment if you like Lydia's in the meeting she listens she hears she responds now someone's story of coming to faith involves an earthquake now, you're Paul or you're Silas. You're in prison. You're locked up. You're kind of uncomfortable and you're desperate to get moving. You're in the will of God. You've got a city to reach. You want to be out of there. You've been praying, God, release me from this dungeon. I hate it. And then an earthquake happens. Now, earthquakes in that part of the world weren't uncommon. But this earthquake somehow manages to break open the prison door and all the chains that are holding them captive, but no one dies. That's quite an earthquake, isn't it? So you can kind of see God's at work. Are you seeing that God's at work? Wow, oh, he's answered our prayers. This is amazing. What's their next response? They're not running. I mean, they're staying put. They're not complaining. They're praying. They're not running. What's the Philippian jailer's response? He's about to kill himself. This hard man. He's about to take his own life. Because if he lost those prisoners, his fate would be worse. He reckoned. This is it. He's going to take his own life. So what do Paul 
What does Paul say? How come none of the other prisoners moved? That's amazing. What have they heard? What have they been listening to? But they all stay put. Turns out that the earthquake wasn't about rescuing them. The earthquake wasn't to rescue God's people in the prison. The earthquake was to rescue him and to change his heart. It took an earthquake to crack through his defenses. But he's desperate. He's hard, but he is actually desperate for the gospel. He's been hearing it in what they've been praying and singing. And so he asks, what must I do to be saved? Now maybe he's asking the question, he's heard so much, what must I be, do to be saved by faith and grace alone and be justified forever? Maybe he's asking that question, what must I do to be saved? Maybe he's, maybe he's saying, what must I do to get out of the mess that I'm in? My life's a mess. I haven't got any hope. There's nothing. That's the question he's asking. The hope for you is in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's saved. Do you, do you see the kingdom of God at work in a church that is only a day or two old? Can we see God at work in our discomfort? Do we believe that God's uh, being in the will of God might sometimes be that uncomfortable? But God has us there for a reason. I mean, nothing that we know, I assume, compares to that directly, though maybe for some it has. That kind of harsh treatment. You read 1 Thessalonians and you see what Paul thought of it. We were dealt with shamelessly. We were insulted. It was unjust. He, may, he sees it clearly. He's not just kind of whistling in the dark, oh, I guess this is God's will. No, he knows it's ugliness and it's un injustice. And he still stays there long enough to see somebody respond to Jesus, who was not the most attractive person in the world. And that's how the church began. Can you imagine that? Just fast forward a little bit. Uh, Paul and Silas and the others, they're meeting with them back in Lydia's house. They're, they're going to go. They've been asked to leave town. And they'll go in a little while, but they're just going to meet with these new, brand new believers, this brand new community, this brand new church, encourage them, and then they're on their way. Going to entrust them to the Lord. A businesswoman, maybe a slave girl, and the local hard man. That's the, that's the church of Jesus. The successful, the downtrodden, and the ugly, the hard. But that's actually quite beautiful, isn't it? That's what the gospel does. That's why we're just spending some time to reconsider what does it mean to be a church? What does it mean to be on mission with God? What does it look like to see his kingdom extend where we are? What are the situations there for? We might be desperate to get out of. But perhaps the Lord will keep us there long enough for us to see some amazing things happen in other people's lives. Did you realize that's what you were signing up for when you gave your life to Jesus? Did you realize that's what kind of being part of a church is about? Believing for these kind of encounters, not just in the meeting, but on the street. Not just in the street, but in a dungeon? John Stott says, it would be hard to imagine a more disparate, different group than the businesswoman, the slave girl, and the jailer. Racially, socially, and psychologically, they were worlds apart. Yet all three were changed by the same gospel and were welcomed into the same church. And so we want to be careful that we are we're believing for that. Some, a couple of weeks ago, someone read out in a meeting like this, maybe it was a prayer meeting downstairs, someone read out from 2 Corinthians, a passage that includes this line. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 16. So from now on, in regard, we, uh, sorry, from now on, we regard no one 
from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. We're compelled by the love of God, believing his work makes new creations. We're no longer looking at one another or others, responding to the gospel, and just looking at it in a worldly way, with worldly labels and worldly expectations. Well, he is a believer, but don't really like his profession, don't have loads in common with him, so I'll give him a bit of a wide berth. Oh, but Lydia, now she's actually quite successful. She wears purple, and she's made lots of money. She's a really nice person. You should spend time with her. Yeah, you should. But can you see, sometimes just in the life of the church, we can just think in the, in the worldly labels, and from a worldly point of view, and if we do that, we're, we're missing out ourselves on the joy of being God's church and of seeing his kingdom extended. Now, in a few weeks, you're going to sign up to a new life group. And you're not going to know who else is signing up to that group and who's going to be part of it. You're not going to know exactly what to expect. Because not, if, you've been, if you were part of a core group some time ago, um, it might be similar, it might be a bit different. You're going to see who's leading the group. You're going to see a bit about what the group's about. You're going to see when it meets, and you're going to go, yeah, I'm going to give that a go. Even then, you're going to find, right, I'm rubbing shoulders then with people who are a bit different from me. That's actually an expression of the gospel. Not just, I want to be with like-minded people. I want to be with people who are a bit, a bit like me. We've got lots in common. They didn't have very much in common, other than they lived in the same town, and they'd just given their life to the same saviour. But wouldn't you love to be part of that church? And don't you get why Paul was so affectionate for them? Let's factor this into our understanding about what it means to be church. Let it shape our prayers and expectations about where we expect to see God move. Who we expect to see God reach. And what we expect him to do in knitting us together as a result. We'd better pray.